Hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, including preeclampsia, complicate up to 10% of pregnancies worldwide. It is the leading medical problem encountered in pregnancy, and despite major advances in medicine, it remains one of the greatest causes of maternal and perinatal morbidity and mortality worldwide. You are listening to ReachMD, and I am your host, Dr. Patrice Basanta-Henry. Joining me today is Dr. Fiamma Wenner. Dr. Wenner is a maternal fetal medicine specialist with Atlanta Maternal Fetal Medicine, a division of Mednax National Medical Group. Today, we will be reviewing the updated recommendations for the management of hypertensive disease in pregnancy. Dr. Wenner, welcome to ReachMD. Hi, good morning, Dr. Henry. Thanks for having me. One of the difficulties with understanding kind of the magnitude of hypertensive disease is that prior to now, there's been no standard for measuring blood pressure or no standard categories for blood pressure issues in pregnancy. Could you speak to that? Ideally, and optimally, now clinically, of course, there are always some deviations, but ideally what you want is the patient sitting comfortably, legs uncrossed, back and neck supported, so in a chair. The cuff should be placed in the mid-upper arm at the level of the right atrium, which is anatomically at the level of the uh, middle of the sternum. You want the patient to relax and not talk during the blood pressure monitoring, and you really want to have her sit for at least five minutes before the blood pressure is taken. So in a clinical setting, that makes it a little bit difficult, but in ideal circumstances, you want them to sit for at least five minutes. If the blood pressure is elevated, you wait and you repeat it after a few minutes just to make sure that it's not a superfluously elevated level. If you measure it in the upper arm while the patient is laying in the left lateral position, which sometimes happens, you can actually falsely lower their blood pressure reading because the cuff is above the heart when the reading is made. So in ideal circumstances, you really want them in a sitting position when you do their blood pressure. Okay, so what are the current categories of hypertensive disease in pregnancy? So there are four current categories, first being a pre-gestational chronic hypertension. Then we have those patients with chronic hypertension who then develop superimposed preeclampsia. We have patients who develop the new onset hypertension in pregnancy, and those are called gestational hypertension. And then we have the preeclampsia cascade, preeclampsia, eclampsia, and HELP syndrome. What are the recommendations for patients to fit into those specific categories? So with chronic hypertension, it is defined as an elevated blood pressure that predates the pregnancy or has developed before 20 weeks gestation in the pregnancy. These patients, when you see them for their initial visit, they usually come in with their history of hypertension as well. You want to get some baseline labs from them, a serum creatinine, their electrolyte levels, their uric acid levels, liver enzymes, a platelet count, and a urine protein should be documented so that if necessary, later on in the pregnancy, if they get superimposed preeclampsia, you have a baseline sample for comparison. Other things you need to do for these women is you need to assess their left ventricular function because they are at an increased risk of left ventricular hypertrophy. So they need an echocardiogram or an electrocardiogram, at least if they've had hypertension for greater than four years. For women who don't have a severe hypertension, and that is defined as a systolic blood pressure, less than 160 millimeters mercury, or a diastolic blood pressure, less than 105 millimeters of mercury, and they don't have any evidence of any end organ damage when you do their evaluation, these women can actually be monitored clinically without any medication. If they are in the severe range, then you want to start them on an antihypertensive medication. 
most of them are already on something, but if they're not, the ideal medications that are recommended are labetalol, mefetidine, or methyl dopa as first-line therapy. And when you treat them, the goal is to keep their blood pressures between 120 to 160 systolic and 80 to 105 diastolic. The other good thing about these women is when they come in for their visit and you assess their medication needs, specific medications that they should come off of in pregnancy are the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors and the angiotensin receptor blockers. Second and third trimester use of these medications can predispose the baby to a few anomalies, so we encourage mommies to discontinue them prior to the pregnancy or when you see them for the first visit. In patients who develop superimposed preeclampsia, that can occur in about 13 to 40% of women with high blood pressure. And we'll kind of go over the management of superimposed preeclampsia when we discuss preeclampsia later on in the discussion. The other diagnosis mentioned before was gestational hypertension. And that is a condition, again, where mommies develop elevated blood pressures after 20 weeks in their gestation, and they do not have any evidence of proteinuria and they don't have any organ damage present. What's important to these women is that even though it is transient, it should resolve when the pregnancy has ended, it is a sign for future hypertension in pregnancy. And then the last condition that we were talking about was preeclampsia. And preeclampsia is a very, very, very serious condition that should not be taken lightly in pregnancy because of the maternal and fetal complications that can develop. Preeclampsia is a pregnancy-specific hypertensive disorder with multi-system involvement. And again, like you mentioned, it's a very, very leading cause of maternal and perinatal morbidity and mortality in the world. Traditionally, and I say this because there have been new guidelines, traditionally the diagnostic criteria initially was a systolic blood pressure of greater than 140 and or diastolic pressure of greater than 90 on two occasions, at least four hours apart, after 20 weeks gestation in a patient who has been previously normotensive. In addition to that, the the, um, traditional criteria added the presence of proteinuria, which is defined as the excretion of 300 milligrams or more of protein in a 24-hour urine total sample. You can also use a protein to creatinine ratio in a single void, and that should exceed about three milligrams per deciliter. When we don't have the opportunity to do a 24-hour urine sample, we'll rely on a urine dipstick. Ideally, though, we really want to get a 24-hour urine total sample on these patients. The qualitative determinant in the urine dipstick is discouraged, unless, of course, there is no alternative option. And if you have to use the urine dipstick, then it's a one-plus protein present on the urine dipstick as the criteria for proteinuria. In those patients who present with severe hypertension, which again is a systolic blood pressure over 160 or a diastolic over 110, you can actually confirm the diagnosis within a shorter interval if you need to facilitate antihypertensive therapy for those patients. Initially, we used to stratify our mild and severe preeclampsia based on the blood pressure criteria and the amount of proteinuria. The task force that recently met um, really strongly recommend that we don't use the term mild preeclampsia because it downgrades the severity of the condition. So the alternative title that is recommended is preeclampsia without severe features. And then eclampsia is the presence of new onset grand mal seizures in a patient who has preeclampsia. And this can occur before, during, or after labor. Other causes of seizures can include bleeding, AV malformations, ruptured aneurysms, or idiopathic seizure disorders. However, these usually um, occur more after um, 48 to 72 hours postpartum. 
you also think about it if the patient is on an anti-epileptic like magnesium sulfate and they have seizures as well. You think about an alternative diagnosis. Most of these women will complain of a pre-monitory event such as the severe headache or hyperreflexia, but it is very important to know that an eclamptic seizure can occur without warning. And then the HELP syndrome is a preeclampsia subtype. It includes hemolysis, which is defined as an LDH greater than 600 or a total bilirubin greater than 1.2, elevated liver function testing, and the presence of thrombocytopenia as defined by a platelet count of less than 100. You mentioned proteinuria. So can a patient still have a diagnosis of preeclampsia if she does not have proteinuria? Absolutely. So in 2013, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology convened a task force on hypertension in pregnancy that has pretty much rehashed everything we've ever learned about preeclampsia. And what they did is they eliminated the dependence of proteinuria for the diagnosis of preeclampsia. So instead of proteinuria, preeclampsia can actually be defined as hypertension in association with thrombocytopenia again defined as a platelet count less than 100,000, impaired liver function test as defined by an elevated transaminase to twice the normal concentration, and the development of renal insufficiency, they defined as creatinine greater than 1.1 or a doubling of the serum creatinine in the patient in the absence of an underlying renal disease, the presence of pulmonary edema or new onset cerebral and visual disturbances. So you actually at this point can have a patient who does not meet the proteinuria criteria but has the features of the severe condition and by definition now have preeclampsia. The other thing that was also revised was we no longer use the 24 urine total protein of greater than 5 grams for the diagnosis of severe preeclampsia. It hasn't actually been found to change the severity of the condition. So once the patient meets the criteria of preeclampsia, which is, again, a value of over 300 milligrams in a 24-urine sample, the definition stands. The amount of protein after that point doesn't alter the management of the patient. So I noticed you didn't mention IUGR. Does this play a role in the diagnosis? So they found that the management of patients with IUGR with and without preeclampsia was actually the same, and so they removed it as a diagnostic criteria for preeclampsia. However, it is part of the criteria for delivery, and we'll mention that a little bit later. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to ReachMD, and I'm your host, Dr. Patrice Basanta-Henry. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Fiamma Wenner, and we are discussing the current recommendations for the management of hypertensive disease in pregnancy. Dr. Wenner, just stepping back for a minute, we've already established how we come up with these diagnoses. Are there any risk factors for preeclampsia? So there are a number of clinical circumstances that increase the risk of preeclampsia in patients. These include a primiparous patient, a patient who has had preeclampsia in a prior pregnancy, so obtaining an obstetric history is very important, patients with chronic hypertension or chronic renal disease, patients with a history of a thrombophilia, a multifetal pregnancy, pregnancy as a result of in vitro fertilization, patients with a family history of preeclampsia in their mother or sister, patients with diabetes, mellitus, obesity, systemic lupus, or advanced maternal age over the age of 40. Okay. So once we have a patient in the office, we're suspicious the patient has preeclampsia. Is there a recommended workup? So patients who... And again, any suspicion of preeclampsia, you know, warrants an evaluation. These patients should have a complete blood count, serum creatinine levels, 
liver enzyme levels, and again, we're screening for any end organ damage, the 24 urine total protein or the protein creatinine ratio. These babies should be evaluated as well, and what we're looking for is the fetal weight to screen for IUGR, the amniotic fluid index to screen for oligohydramnios, and non-stress testing or biophysical profiles, depending on what your facility performs. Does diagnosis of hypertension in pregnancy always require medication? They don't. Ideally, for patients who have a systolic blood pressure, who are able to maintain their systolic blood pressure of less than 160 systolic or 110 diastolic, it's actually suggested that the antihypertensive medications not be administered. They haven't found sufficient enough evidence to suggest that treating these patients with a non-severe hypertension will improve the maternal and neonatal outcome. And it also provides you advantage to determine if the patient's condition is progressing, if they are becoming severe. You've mentioned that hypertensive disorders in pregnancy have a high morbidity and mortality. So once we've established this diagnosis, how do we manage these patients in the antepartum period and when should they be delivered? So this evaluation can occur again in a hospital setting or an outpatient setting. It all depends on how severe you think the patient's condition is. If these patients have been found to be stable, they have mild gestational hypertension or preeclampsia without severe features, these women can actually be managed as an outpatient. You do want to do close follow-up with them, though. They should be seen at least once or twice in the week. You want to evaluate their blood pressures at all the visits. If the patient has already established a diagnosis of preeclampsia, you do not have to repeat the 24-hour urine total protein. They need weekly labs to assess for, again, end-organ damage. So you get a CBC and CMP to assess their liver function, their creatinine, their um, CBCs as well. You do outpatient antenatal surveillance on these women. They have serial growth scans as well, and what you're looking for for them is any evidence to suggest their disease has progressed to severe preeclampsia. If these women are clinically stable and they're doing well, delivery is recommended for patients with preeclampsia without severe features at 37 weeks gestation, and for women who have mild gestational hypertension between 37 and 38 weeks gestation. For the women, though, that are developing severe preeclampsia or severe hypertension, who have evidence of growth restriction, thrombocytopenia, elevated LFTs, these women actually should be hospitalized and monitored as an inpatient. And for these women, if they are clinically stable and they do meet the criteria for expected management, you can keep them pregnant. You can keep them in-house. You monitor them to frequent vitals, again, like we discussed, frequent labs. And these women should be delivered at 34 weeks gestation. However, if at any point in time these women become clinically unstable, if their babies become clinically unstable, despite how far they are in the pregnancy, immediate delivery is always warranted. So the million-dollar question, can we predict or prevent preeclampsia? Unfortunately, no. Now, there are great strides that have been made in terms of trying to find any biochemical analyte to determine who the, you know who these women will be, and unfortunately, they're not there yet. They're not there yet, but they are working on it. What about the prevention of preeclampsia? There have been some updated recommendations regarding that. Yes, ma'am. So the recent studies have actually found that the anti-inflammatory effects of aspirin have actually reduced the risk of preeclampsia and adverse pregnancy outcomes. Giving women an 81-milligram aspirin daily, beginning at 12 weeks, in these high-risk women will reduce the risk of preeclampsia by 24%, preterm birth by 14%, 
and IUGR by 20%. And these women that are at the highest risk of preeclampsia are again going back to their risk factors, women who have had an adverse pregnancy outcome, a multifetal gestation, patients with chronic hypertension, diabetes, renal disease, autoimmune conditions such as lupus or antiphospholipid antibody syndrome have actually been found to benefit greatly from them having a 81 milligram aspirin. Women are encouraged to begin it at 12 weeks gestation again. What about patients with a history of preeclampsia? Do we have special counseling for them and how do we manage their future pregnancies? What's very important for these women is when you see them, preconception counseling would be ideal, but if you see them in their first prenatal appointment, you want to get the specific details of the prior pregnancy, find out when the preeclampsia developed, the severity of their condition, did they need medical management, and more specifically, did their blood pressure resolve postpartum? Some of these women, unfortunately, after they deliver, do not follow up with their primary care doctors, so it's hard to distinguish if they present with a new onset hypertension in pregnancy, is it a pre-existing condition for them? So you want to review that prior history for them as well. You encourage them to modify the lifestyle activities, such as weight loss. You encourage them to increase their physical activity because that helps. If the patient has a pre-existing hypertension, again, make sure that they're on the ideal medication that you would want to use in pregnancy, and you want them to have their blood pressures well-controlled. The same for diabetes. Patients need to make sure that they are well-controlled before they become pregnant. And again, you encourage them to start the low-dose aspirin at 12 weeks, and you encourage them to start early prenatal care and educate them about the signs and symptoms of preeclampsia at every visit. Dr. Weiner, we're nearing the end of our time together. Do you have any additional information you would like to share with our listening audience? For just those patients who you have a concern about preeclampsia, if there is any concern, anything that makes you feel uncomfortable with their management, do the workup. These women can present in various stages of their condition, and sometimes we can catch it early enough where we can adequately intervene on these women. So for any woman that has a concern, you want to go ahead and do the evaluation. And at every visit with these women, always review preeclampsia precautions with them. Make sure that they know them well so that if they have any concerns, it can always be addressed. It's a very, very potentially dangerous condition in pregnancy, but it can be managed and these women can have successful outcomes, healthy babies, and go on to have great future reproductive health. Dr. Wenner, thank you for joining us today. This was a very informative conversation. Thank you for having me. And to download this podcast and others in this series, please visit reachmd.com. We welcome you to share, like, and comment on this podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Patrice Basanta-Henry, and you've been listening to ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge. Thank you for listening.